Hello and welcome to another episode of The Next Game, a story of transition with me, Will Hooley. This is the podcast that aims to bring you the stories, the advice, the experiences of those who have gone through transition or who are going through transition away from the professional sports field into the next chapter, that life after rugby, the next game. Now, once again, this podcast is sponsored by Sandlam and Sandlam On Demand. Of course, I can't thank them enough for their continued support and they can support you at sandlam.co.uk forward slash Sandlam On Demand to try and achieve all your financial goals, any financial questions. They are there for you uh, to support you uh, like they are supporting me. So thank you very much to Sandlam for once again powering this podcast. Now, new episode, of course, means a new guest. And this guest today, well, he's probably one of the longest serving rugby union professional players there's been. And it is none other than Tom May. Tom had an incredible 19 year professional rugby career. One of those clubs that he was at was the Newcastle Falcons, his first sort of professional club where he gained over 250 appearances, winning the Tetley Bitter Cup in 1999. He then went on to become probably one of the first English players to play overseas when he went to Toulon. And then from there, had spells in Northampton Saints and finished his career at London Welsh. So it'd be great to get his kind of whole idea as to how he transitioned from club to club, but particularly from the English game to the French game. Tom also won two England caps, both in 2009. He played England sevens, retiring in 2015. Off the field, he's had many a role in different sectors, uh, including the media career and punditry and commentary on European games, domestic games, international games. He continues to do that, but also off the field, he's had roles in consultants, uh, sports agency with Activate Management. He's had five years worth of experience at Club Sportif as a partner. And probably most recently, he has become a partner of Future Proof Pro. What's really interesting about this business is they are literally supporting professional athletes at all stages who are looking to transition out of the professional game, focusing very much on athlete welfare. So what a brilliant guest to come on on the next game to talk about athlete welfare. So really looking forward to speaking to Tom. He's an incredibly honest guy and this episode I'm really looking forward to sharing. So without further ado, it gives me great pleasure in welcoming Tom May. Tom, thank you very much for, for joining me today. Uh, we know each other personally over the years, particularly uh, when playing together at Northampton Saints. One of your clubs that you play for you obviously with Newcastle Falcons Toulon Northampton Saints London Welsh so it's been a bit of transition in your rugby career I suppose my first question is Newcastle Falcons to Toulon (laughs) that's quite a contrast isn't it um talk to me how that came about and talk to me how you were feeling as a player back then making that big move one of the probably first English players to do so yeah, look, uh, firstly, great to be on, on your podcast. Hopefully, I'll be able to s- s- shed some insight into what it's like transitioning. But yeah, look, I was I guess I was one of the first first English guys to, to make that transition across to France. Um, and I, to be quite honest, when I got the phone call, I was I was away in um, Lee Mears' house in Barbados. <laughs> and my agent, my agent rang me and said, uh, Philippe Saint-André is interested in taking you to Toulon. Would you be interested? And I chatted to him a couple of times before when he was involved with Sale. And I never, I'd looked down there, but I never left Newcastle. And then when I worked out where it was, 
left, it soon it soon became pretty <laughs> apparent I was going to go. So you know, look, I spent I spent some great years up in the northeast where you know I made some great friends, some brilliant memories. But it was time for me to move on. Um, I did have another year left on my contract, but it was an opportunity that probably wouldn't have come around again if I if I'd let it go because I was thirty. You know, I've I've spoken to a few guys, you know, people who've been on the podcast about those sort of opportunities in their career and use that word opportunity. You know, why did it feel so right at that age, at that time to to transition into another club? Two reasons. First, and you know, let's make no bones about it. Financially it was better I was better off going down there. <laughs> of course. Well, that's there's three. The second one was a tan. <laughs> and and the third one, I one of the subjects that I'd actually was vaguely decent at school was French and being asked to go to a country and experience a different way of life in that part of France, many, not many people get that opportunity. So, you know, and no disrespect to Newcastle, but I was going from a, a city where predominantly it's football hmm. to a, a culture where they are rugby lunatics, it, almost football-esque, if you like. So to, rugby, the Toulon Rugby Club is is the football te- the football club in the town, and it's got that sort of feel about it when you're playing for them. So that opportunity wasn't going to come again. You know, I was 30, and you know what it's like when you get to that, not that you are that age yet, but when you get to that point, you have to start thinking about uh, your longevity, your, your opportunities, and what well, I was anyway, how you make that step out of the game. And I had to do it, basically. It was something I needed to do, and, and I, I look back on it with with you know huge hugely fond memories. There's obviously a lot of talk from players who have done similar things, you know, gone gone to France, and that culture shock. Was there a culture shock when you got there? I mean, what was too long when you, when you rocked up back when you made the move? Um, there was a culture shock, and I went down there on, on my own at the, at the time, and then my wife at the time and followed afterwards. But it was just ve- the way things were done are very different on field at the club and away from rugby life. I think I think here in the UK, we, we're used to getting things done when we want them done. <laughs> it does not happen like that in France. <laughs> uh, and you can't, if you get stressed about it, you soon realise that actually it's causing you more, more problems than, than if you just let things happen the way they're supposed to happen over there, which is frustrating at times, but you know that's all part of the experience, right? The reason why we, it wasn't necessarily such a cultural shock at the club, I think Philippe San Andre had spent years in the UK and had seen the professional levels that had been shown across all of the clubs in the Premiership in the UK. Right. He'd taken yeah. that to Lon and wanted to instill those those values, those fundamentals. And there were that many players from overseas at the time that it didn't really feel like you were going in ones and twos into a completely alien um, environment. So I think we we all bought into it as players, and you know there was probably twelve of us from overseas that arrived the year I, I arrived. And that made it a bit easier to swallow and to get on with it and just, just right, this is a slightly different, but nothing nothing vastly different. But, you know, I think I think over time, that was what helped evolve Toulon into the powerhouse they were because of all those fundamentals that they set. And one of those individuals, of course, was, was Johnny Wilkinson. And I, and I know you played with um, <clears throat> Wilkinson at, at Newcastle for many years and then him coming to Toulon, I mean, it really it kind of put Toulon on the map again. I mean, no disrespect, Tommy, but it, it, it really did. And and I'm just interested to hear, you know, well, how much of an influence did he have around the place? Um, I mean, the likes of Sonny Bill Williams were there as well, but obviously I think Johnny Wilkinson, I mean, there pretty much is a statue of him in Toulon now. So massive impact he had. Yeah, and I think, listen, I, I bought into the 
the whole thing. But if there's ever anyone that buys into anything more than anyone else, it, it'll be Johnny. Whether it's playing guitar, whether it's kicking a football, whether it's learning French, he's better at it than anyone else. <laughs> so yeah, look, he he did all of it. He did all of his interviews straight away in in French. A lot of us, yes, we could get by, but we had a translator next to us and all of the problems that he was facing back here seemed to sort of just disappear when he went over there in terms of um, he was just left to his own devices to get on with what, yes, he was put on a pedestal as a, as a, as a hero and, and rightly so, but he was largely left to get on with it. So you know, it sounds as though Toulon was one of your best bits in your career. And, and I couldn't believe when I, when I looked up 19 years worth, bloody hell, you, you stayed around, didn't you? But I'm just interested. I hung on for dear life, mate. <laughs> I'm just interested, you know, you, you picked up two caps in, in 2009 and I'm just interested, what did you regard as your most successful time within your very established career? I think it's pretty easy to point at international honours and say, look, I, I achieved a boyhood dream to, to play for my country. And maybe one day I'll look back on that and, and see that as my as my sort of most successful time. But I don't think I'm still... I haven't still really got my head around having done it. And also, I'm slightly frustrated I didn't do it more. Mm. Not that I have a regret that I didn't do it more, because I know it's out of your hands, but I feel that other times in my career, I was playing better than I was when I got capped. But then you look at the competition around at the time, and it was like, right, you know, Mike Cap, Mike Tindall, Will Greenwood, not easy. Um, <laughs> so, you know, likes of Ricky Flutie, Jamie New, my own teammate. It was tough. And I think there's just a little bit of an underlying frustration there still. Um, Oscar's got my shirt on, on the wall at home and, and, and you know, ha- has it there and, and clearly looks at it and, and you know, that, oh, that, that was amazing. I wish I'd seen it. But I think in my head, it hasn't, there's still a bit of underlying frustration there in a way. But look, in, t- in terms of most successful times, most happy times, I think one of the, having won something with my club was, I still look back on those two cup wins. So we played in three cup finals as a Newcastle team and won two of them. In 1999, that Titley Bitter Cup was the big one, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then we, and then Power Gen Cup two years after that against Sale. You know, winning something with your teammates that you work so hard with year in, year out is is off the charts, really. Mm. Um, so I look back at those as, you know, and you're, I've won one of those with your coach now at, at Saracens, Joe Shaw. Yeah. And, you know, they were brilliant brilliant times I don't really think I, I sort of go there's one successful moment I just I look look back at my whole career and and realize how I'm pretty proud that I I last you know made a joke of it but how it lasted so long and I think that came down to my the way I worked I wasn't you know you'll know I wasn't the fastest wasn't the most skillful and um, there was a lot of other people that were probably better but I was pretty well set up top in that I was pretty competitive didn't really want to ever be second best and and I think probably Every time I set foot on a field, I, I gave a hundred percent. I think that's probably what enabled me to continue for so long. There, I don't. There, there won't be many people. I don't think, especially now in the game that you guys are playing, that, that lasts that long. And so, you know, I I look back now and say, well, you know, that's something to be really proud of. And 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 maybe that's that's the thing that I sort of hang my hat on. Maybe. And I think also you played in probably every position in the backs, more or less. No, that yes, without a shadow of a doubt, I have. So even even when I think at, at Toulon, uh, Pierre Mignoni got uh, simbined a couple of times, and it was me that had to go in at scrum half, and that is horrific. Those guys are so fit; it's unbelievable. What would you be? What would you say is the hardest position in that back line? Then go on, scrum half, mate. Really, without a shadow of a doubt, just to get to the next breakdown is horrific. <laughs> and when I was playing fly half, I Steve Bates was my coach, and he'd given me 
some pretty simple instructions. If you want to kick, kick. If you want to pass, pass it to Nuni. If you want to run, just have a go. You know, as a fly off, that's that's really simple. You know, we were at the time we were teetering on the edge of relegation and, and sort of had a m- massive sort of upswing at the end of the season whereby, you know, so I think we ended up maybe eight for something, which, you know, we overthrew a load of people but had a, went on a great run. And of course that wasn't all down to me, but, but being involved in those games, you can either go, right, this is a really pressurised position or he's let all the pressure off by just giving me three things to think about, um, which is great. I wish maybe fly half was as easy as that these <laughs> days. I think the game has maybe changed a little bit. Tommy, this this podcast is called The Next Game. I suppose we did actually touch on it a small part when you were talking about Toulon, but when did you start thinking about life after rugby first? I don't think my dad ever let me get away with it. Uh, get away from it, sorry. Um, I went to university as I went to Newcastle. So I finished, I finished school uh, and I went and played for Richmond and I had a year off and I did some PE teaching. I was a PE assistant for a year. And then I went to university at Newcastle and signed for the club. So then I... I did three years there uh, I had one year off after that and I got that was when I got dropped the most I found if I wasn't doing something else away from rugby I became stale mm. I I think doing something away from rugby enabled rugby to be what it was when we were growing up which was a hobby and something fun uh, whereas it does change and it does become a job and of course it's fun but it takes on different a different dynamic and um, I think I was always thinking about it I was trying businesses some didn't work some did I've had different experiences in all sorts of different uh, industries and sectors throughout my career as a consultant or, or ever since I've transitioned out, which is nearly six years ago. But I'd say, but it's still very difficult. And I was probably looked at as one of those guys that, oh, well, Tommy would be fine because he knows, he knows everyone. He's been working really hard for it and he'll be set. And you still are rocking. You know what? I think that's it's so interesting because I've talked to previous guests about the loss of rugby identity and that feeling of that when you do hang the boots up, you know, you don't become Tom May, the rugby player anymore. Ultimately, you, people might associate the fact that you did play professional rugby, but, you know, the fact that you've done 19 years worth of professional rugby is pretty hard then to suddenly go, you know, your last game, whenever it was, and then you're not that professional rugby player anymore. What were the challenges for you on that? We talk about mental health in previous episodes. I'm interested to see what what affected you and what was the things that maybe helped you. Mate, I, I, if you could do a retirement out of rugby, you could not do it worse than I did it. <laughs> uh, because I went from it wasn't like I'd wanted a finish. It was basically my age saying, and and the fact we got battered at London Welsh for you know however many games, and my body needed a break, but. I would have continued if I'd been given the opportunity. Wow. I wanted to step away, but in my mind, I think I was still like, I still want to do this. Uh, but I wanted, I always wanted to step away on my terms. Yeah. So I'd rather, I'd rather step, step away earlier and think I could have done a bit more than be binned off by someone or, you know, not have it my way, basically. Got divorced, went through a divorce at the same time as transitioning. Not easy. Mm. And, Moved down to London Welsh. Obviously, I was playing playing for London Welsh. But but then I think in hindsight, I would have tried to go and work for someone because I basically went from having 19 years of knowing when my pay was going to be in my bank account to 
not mm. and chasing i had to learn quickly about chasing invoices or or how to write invoices or um what i need to be doing where where do i need to be what are the best strategies that i need to be doing to make the best opportunity or the best from what, whatever the opportunities were at that time and being someone that obviously that was ultra competitive and, and those in my household was stage still is you know i found it i did find it difficult and and but not that i would have ever shown anyone you know still to this day now Becky will say to me, well, you know, what on earth are you doing training me as hard as you do? You know, I train five times a week. I don't need to. I'm 42. And, you know, I can't put my socks on. So just <laughs> give it a rest and, you know, maybe do a bit of stretching or whatever. But I still train every day. I follow a nutrition plan during the week. And that's the thing that I get control over. And I think what's interesting when you're a player is, you know, if you want to get faster, you go and do everything that makes you a faster player. If you want to get stronger, you go to the gym more. You want to work on your skills and get better at passing, you perform repetitions of it. In the corporate world, there are so many moving parts and so many different agendas. It's really difficult to grab hold of it and just pull them all together. And that I find and have found really difficult to adjust to. And the thing that I've got control over is me beasting myself on a treadmill or you know having control of my body. Um, which is probably my my sort of outlet. Looking back at that, then you talked about learning about invoices, you know, learning about the corporate world. What do you reckon you could have done to maybe help yourself be better in that situation? I didn't use the RPA as, as probably as well as I should have during my career, but I also felt at the time that I always wanted to work for myself, but I don't think I'd realised what that entailed to the point where the Monday after, well, no, it was, it was probably the Monday after because we had Mad Monday. Uh, <laughs> of course. But yeah, uh, it was probably the Monday after that where you just wake up and you're like, right, what, what, uh, you know, what do I wear? What do I do? Mm. Um, what's the structure of my day? I, th- I think going under, underneath someone else's umbrella as, a, as an employee or whatever you like, post-career, would have done me more good and given me more stability. And learning as well, right? Yeah, learning. Yeah, you learn more about, you know, whatever it is, it might not be the career you want to do ultimately, but you're at least you're learning about something else and probably proving to yourself that actually, no, I don't want to do this. But I didn't. And I went out and I had to just, you know, you either sink or swim, right? I just grafted as hard as I could and and, and managed to, to make it work. So it's difficult. And any player that goes through transition, no matter what the sport, is going to experience that. Some potentially down to their personalities, some will feel the effects more than others. But I still think it has... It's exactly the same as anyone leaving the military. You're leaving an institutionalized uh, industry and you're going into somewhere where you've got to learn something completely different. Did you find as well, financially, was that like a worry in your mind? I mean, how important now do you, do you, would you sort of advise people to think about financial planning? Massively. You know, look, don't get me wrong, during my career, I, was, I did all right. And, but then I got divorced. Mm. So that changed a lot. Um, so the things that I'd set aside for post rugby were no longer there mm. so which is sort of all part of that perfect storm look it's taken me it's taken me three years to to manage that process and now sort of two and a half three years after, after that I'm, I'm in a much better place and, and everything's fine but there mate there's been horrifically dark times that you know I haven't really told too many people about which is part of the reason actually why I've I've sort of gone down this route of, of being a uh, an ambassador for for Mindspace two four seven. I have to get a bit better with dealing with my emotions, talking about what I need to talk about. If myself and the people around me are going to be, are going to have the happiest life that we can have. 
And talking is massive. I mean, again, I've talked to you know, Matt Jess on this podcast before and the mental health battle that he he faced when he finished. And he's one of the biggest things that helped him was ultimately talking about it. And I, I just think you saying that point is um, is fantastic. I mean, thank you for sharing that and being so honest because I do think as players, there's no issue with finding it hard. And transition, it's not easy going. No, and look, I reached a point where... I got myself financially into a massive, massive hole, uh, probably about two and a half years after retiring. Right. And I haven't told anyone of this, uh, so you're really lucky. <laughs> um, I had to go, to go to my dad, who him and I are probably very similar in the way that we deal with our emotions and we, how we talk about stuff. And I, had to, I took him to the pub and I said, we were at the bar. I said, uh, to be fair, Dad, I think we need to be sat down for this. And he just went white as a sheet. And like just, but then, but then, so, so then I told him, told him what was going on. And actually he just sat there and he was like, right, well, let's find a way to, to deal with it. And we, and we, and we found a way and actually me talking about it made a massive difference to me. And I realized what it'd been doing to me before in not saying anything, mm. you know, I'd just been cooping up all of this sort of pressure all this mental tension. And actually it had been coming out of me in different ways, you know, when I, when I went out on, on a weekend or whatever, I properly went out. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it sort of just spiralled. But actually that one conversation is the, is the one conversation now that I'll hold as an example and say, right, that is where, the, you know, I can see that talking about something makes a difference. Finances. It's quite a daunting word. I mean, what do you even do with your money? Where do you even try and invest it? How can you achieve your lifelong financial goals? Well, luckily, this podcast is powered by Sandlam, and in particular, Sandlam On Demand. Sandlam offer a complimentary service called Sandlam On Demand, where listeners of this podcast will receive a no-obligation video consultation with one of Sandlam's friendly experts to help you review or put together your financial plan. You can ask anything about your finances and investments that you ever wanted to know and more. All you have to do is visit sandlam.co.uk forward slash sandlam on demand to get involved and get going with your financial plan. Um, I want to just take it back a little bit because we, we talked about London Welsh and you, and you talked about how London Welsh was a move that you kind of did to look at that outside of rugby perspective. Um, I'm sure financially you gained from it. Did it for free, mate. Of course you did it for free. You're, you're, um, you're a good Samaritan. Um, I want to just get your thoughts on on the championship because I know you obviously spent uh, some time the championship with London Welsh, um, but also London Welsh as a club is a heck of a story. When we talk about transition, that was a club that folded for people that don't know due to financial problems. Literally, lads were left out to dry and you know it, it was just the nature of the sport you know they literally it was one day where the club just closed i know you weren't there for the exact timing but you obviously have a lot of association to that club i'm sure a lot of soft spots for the club as well and you probably had mates who lost their lost their jobs lost their careers i mean yeah thoughts on all of that in terms of that whole london welsh story yeah listen i i, I had an opportunity to stay in the premiership with a club not too far from northampton but I wanted to move to London to to help manage that transitional process. More contacts, more more opportunities potentially to to help developing ideas and, and different business opportunities post career. So moving to London Welsh at the time was great. Apart from I scored 
those two tries for Northampton that, that actually relegated them, which was probably one of the weirdest moments of my career. So I should say, for anyone who doesn't know that, what, what you're trying to say is that you were playing for Northampton against London Welsh, scored two tries, London Welsh then went down to the championship, right? Yeah. At the end of that game. Yeah. I mean, it's probably, it's really strange. Um, I wouldn't advise that for anyone that has that in their, <laughs> on, their, on their mind. Um, but yeah, I, moving down there was, was great. Yeah. Difficult. Cause we want, we were going into the championship, but as soon as I got there, it was like, right, how do we get up? And look, championship has been through a tough period of years recently. Mm. But as you'll experience and have experienced, there's some teams in there that have got some decent players. Yeah, You know, outside of the premiership, there are some good players knocking around on surfaces that probably allow some of the other players to make it a bit of a leveller. Yeah, And actually, it's a tough league. And I think it's an important league. That season in that championship was tough and, and everyone was tipping Bristol to, to, to go back up. And to have won that was great. And then to be op- the opportunity to go one more year and be captain of a, of a premiership team, I was never going to say no. Mm. Essentially, it was myself, Dean Schofield, Piriwipu, Ollie Barkley, uh, and I'm probably doing a couple of others a bit of a disservice, that were the older guys. And aside from that, you're looking at, at guys that were sort of 25 and younger and I think that had a, a sort of a an effect on the club because you had guys that that didn't realize what this was going to have what it's going to do to the to the to their careers thereafter mm. um, and look I knew I was going to retire and my competitive nature just meant that I would I'd go after each game anyway in fact my last game was against Saracens and to see what happened was horrific to say I didn't think I saw it coming no I think I probably did Mm. Um, because I actually when I'd retired I went back to London Welsh and said to them look let me come and help and try and guide this club into professionalism and this is one of the sort of great things about London Welsh it exists as a brilliant amateur club and has done for years and years and years but effectively moved into the top level of professional rugby still existing in a in a sort of amateur format and that was never going to end well and look, yeah, a lot of a lot of good mates did lose their jobs. Um, there's a couple of good mates of mine now that have that have managed London Welsh through this process of going right the way down to the bottom, and now they're sort of coming back up, and you know they're doing a brilliant job. But they now know their level, yeah. and they don't want to go above that level. And you know they're happy with main, uh, sort of a main maintenance role, I guess, within within the rugby leagues. I think we should definitely mention, you know, London Welsh is definitely picking themselves back up, and like you say. A fantastic historic club, which we hope to see near the top of English rugby again. I just find it interesting you said about, you know, mates who lost their jobs. I think it moves in nicely to then the the next question about what you're involved in now, which is uh, involved with Future Proof. And I know you obviously have a great passion as a partner of Future Proof to help athletes who are either in a point where they are transitioning, but also to get them ready. I mean, how important is it, your advice to being being ready and also talk around the fact of what future proof is? I think being ready is is ultimately it's the key. <laughs> if you're not, you're gonna be you'll be in a complete spin for a for a long time. Um, and that just doesn't apply to rugby. That's that's all sports. So in fact, Ollie Slighthome, who now plays for Northampton, his dad, I play I played against his dad years ago. And um, he spoke to me when I was still at Newcastle about doing something in this area, this sort of transitional piece. He went and got a big HR role and, and we agreed to leave it where it was. I looked at it a couple of years ago and sort of scratched the surface and realized that actually I can't do this on my own. And, you know, 
park it. And then I, during lockdown one, I was mucking around in the paddling pool with the kids and I got a phone call and James Hitchman, who is the founder of the business, who has a big uh, background in recruitment, um, had said that he'd spoken to John about me um, and they wanted to get me involved. And it's gone from there, basically. We grew it from July last year yeah. to basically becoming operational, I would say, end of October. Um, but we've been set up to effectively allow athletes from all sports, everyone's sector agnostic, sport agnostic, to make confident transitions from sport. That means understanding the basics that you need to get right, but then also starting to learn and develop yourself over time so that actually when you really start to get motoring, by the time you need to be, you're, you know, you're, you're at full belt into, into those sort of interview stages of, or whatever it is that you're, you're looking to try and go into. So actually, Slights and I have come from a background where we know a lot of people. So we've opened up our sort of black book. We're trying to get as many clients into, into that sort of uh, pool of corporates that want to employ sporting talent for all of their positive um, transferable skills. And those are numerous, but you know, and that's probably another podcast in itself. And then we're now saying to the to the likes of the governing bodies and the player governing bodies, look, we're here to help. Mm. So we've spoken to the RPA, the PCA, the, um, the the Welsh RPA, all sorts of different bodies that we want to lend a hand to, and we want to place people into roles. So we, in fact, we just made another placement today. These are roles, you know, all the way up the spectrum of. Of, of what people might want to be doing and the guys that have a recruitment background within the business they know exactly what those people that are recruiting want to see we have uh, probably three or four guys and girls that are full-time within the business and are at it all day every day so there's about 12 of us and it's brilliant to see what we're starting to try and do we've put something called fp zone together which is essentially a hub whereby you can access different modules you can read up on on different things um, access different links and a, and a sort of mentor scheme which i think is quite important especially if you want to i know i know some lads for example have you know developed their own gin or they've got ideas to build their own products or whatever it is mm. so actually they need a sort of circle of help around them so yeah, look, we're really excited about what we're what we're doing, and it's it's great to to actually be placing placing people right now. I mean, what what therefore? If I'm coming to you in a position where I haven't transitioned yet, but I am thinking about it, obviously in the years ahead. What is the sort of biggest bits of advice you'd be telling me as someone, obviously as a partner, future proof, but also Tom May, with the 19 year experience in rugby and then and obviously in the years after it you know what would you really say to players for anyone going through transition these are the things to watch out for these are the things to be aware and and to get yourself we talked about the word ready i think what watch out for people that will have your pants down interesting they'll be out looking for you as a they'll probably see you as a soft touch and, and maybe a bit naive in the corporate world it happened to me pretty quickly and I, you know that was a learning curve i didn't get sour about it or anything like that it was it is what it is and move on but you're suddenly right right game's changed here it's not i trust the bloke on my inside and my outside it's mm. yeah it's let's build that trust and then let's see if it stays there that'd be one thing is, is being aware taking those those chances to to do different things when they're around because i know they are around whether you go in and see a bit see a business and, and learn about that and spend a bit of time with different people and no one's saying you need to be that training at 
seven thirty in the morning having your breakfast, leaving training at three in the afternoon, and then working till late at night because that's just not sustainable. You do need to rest and recuperate as a professional athlete. But it is a flat out lie if a professional sports person turns around to you and says, "I don't have enough time." <laughs> I agree. Well, they might be on call of duty. They might be going to Nando's. You know, that's, you've got to remember these things, mate. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. They might be very good at that. Hey, look, I've learned a lot about esports over the past few years and uh, maybe Call of Duty is the way forward, mate. I don't know. <laughs> maybe it is. We get good at it. Just ask Luke Cowan Dickey. I think he's doing reasonably well in the, in the way of gaming. Yeah, exactly. The other one thing I would say, and, and it's, it isn't for everyone, and you'll know in your changing room right now, there are people that don't want to speak to corporates or sponsors or whatever. Speak to as many people as you can. Get cards, get on LinkedIn, connect with them because you never know. I literally, just before this, I spoke to uh, a guy in, in um, Newcastle about something um, that I haven't spoken to for 10 years. Mm. And I could just send him a message, give him a ring and pick his brains. And that's what it's about. You never know what someone's offer 15 years ago might still be there that could be just the gateway that you're after. Um, I think there's too many guys and girls probably that see meeting sponsors and corporates as quite frankly a pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. Yeah, See it as an opportunity. It's not long, it's not hard. And it's just, it helps you become a more rounded individual. And I think that's what clubs, they benefit from that by you being a more rounded individual. They don't benefit from someone just being a complete rugby nose. Rounded individuals add something to those clubs. And, and by meeting sponsors and chatting to different people, you get, you get those, those sorts of people. Tommy, as part of your wide range of experience within, you know, has been consulting or whatever it might be, you also find you find yourself in the media and you found yourself picking up gigs on BT Sport, Sky Sports, BBC Five Live. I'm just interested, really. How did you find how did you get yourself involved in that and, and how did it sort of come about? I think my first game was a top 14 game when Toulon were playing Beeritz at the stoop, and I was a I was a pundit or I came back and I did it. I did like an ESPN game back in the day and it was Newcastle against Worcester or something. And I, did, I didn't have any training, didn't have anything like that, but I liked it. And actually since having retired, it gives me a way to stay in touch with the game, but, right. but not have just completely shut the door. Yeah. Um, and actually I've been, I've been really lucky in, in to do in getting into some brilliant, opportunities to to go to the world cup i did the world cup here for example in 2015 i spent eight weeks in japan on holiday apparently <laughs> uh, um but you know i was at the rico at the weekend you know it, it just allows you to stay in touch with something that's given you so much over the years and talk about something that quite frankly i'd be watching at home anyway so you know it's it's a it's a fantastic opportunity i I'm, it doesn't it's not lost on me that everyone wants to do it. Mm. Um, and you have to make sure that you you do your research um, and, and do as well as you can because there's always the next cab off the rank. I mean, you've obviously got an unbelievable rugby CV. So so you're probably in the in the top end category. But obviously there's guys, pundits who are, you know, you might be there with Johnny Wilkinson, for example, or Brian Habana, which you've probably done, done in the past. Is there an element that you've got to make sure you're confident? I think you're right in that, 
maybe some of those guys can't turn around and go, well, they, they, they might not have the understanding across a range of different positions or they haven't played at certain different clubs or they might have, not have an understanding of I know, what French rugby is like from a, from a cultural perspective. Mm. But certainly when I first started going in and it was like, oh my God, I'm, this guy's played for England 60 times or this guy's you know, played for France or whatever it is. But then you have to add your, your different aspects. So, so when I'm doing my commentary, for example, which I prefer now to being the, the sort of pundit side, or, or actually I prefer doing the, the hosting stuff as well, you, you realise that actually what you're, what you're delivering in commentary has to be very good. Or, or there's someone else that's you know probably got a higher profile than you in, in terms of a rugby background that actually can come in and do the same job. So if you're just garbling absolute drivel, it just doesn't work. Um, so I've tried to sort of add, there's a couple of th- different things that I work on that, that I try and sort of make my own thing. Um, but, you know, it's, it's trying to add your own little, little sort of feel to it, I guess, because you can't be afraid to, you know, if Will Hooley's having an absolute stinker. You've got to say it. <laughs> you've got to say it mate um and it, you know you, but i think you can deliver it in ways that you know don't make you a complete plonker do you know what i mean it's not um this isn't about going out and getting someone it's it's just you've got to talk you've got to be honest um you know and if will hurley's having the, the game of his life you've got to say it i think that's fr- the bit that frustrates me sometimes i hear people sitting on the fence a bit too much but I know it's difficult when you're in career. Exactly. Well, you know, you, you can maybe be a bit more honest than someone who's a current player. Yeah, <laughs> uh, for sure. Tommy, the last question, and, and I ask, try and ask all my guests this, is very much the title of the podcast, the next game. You know, what is Tom May's uh, next game? Future goals, whether it's with Future Proof, whether it's with a side business you've got in store, you know, what what is your next chapter? What are you going to go after? Do you know what? I should probably have a look at what my goals are, Risty, because I've just been chasing my tail for 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 so long. I think, um, listen, I'm, I'm getting I'm getting married next year. Uh, I want my kids to to grow up and have the same opportunities that, that I had, and that's that's a real focus of mine. From a business perspective, I've got when you're a sports person and you and you come out into into sort of the real world in inverted commas, your drive to get to the top. It's just the same as when you're in your, in your sport. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm working on a project now that could be pretty game-changing in the world of fintech. And I've had to upskill quickly, but there's a fantastic opportunity to to really revolutionize that that sort of part of the, the banking world. And the fact that, fact that I was warned off doing anything with numbers when I was at university was, uh, is quite interesting. But, you know, I, it, the, the, the brilliant thing is that you can apply it to sort of customer experience and and all sorts of different sectors, including sport, which makes it interesting. So, yeah, I, I'd like to, you know, in, in two or three years' time, sort of be able to look back and go, well, the process was one where I had to learn quickly and upskill, and it's been difficult, but it's been worth it. So um, that's my main focus for now. You know, I clearly like to stay in touch with, with the game of rugby and, and do as much media as I can, but my day-to-day, that's what my day-to-day is. Superb. Tommy, you've been super honest. I really respect that and everything you've you've said. And uh wishing you well with the with the wedding, wishing you well with your family and uh and take care of yourself. Cheers, mate. Good to be on. If you've enjoyed this episode with Tom May, then please go out there and share it, review it, subscribe, and just all in all, give it some love. 
Thank you once again to Sanlam and in particular Sanlam On Demand for powering this podcast. And thank you for once again coming back and listening in to the next game, A Story of Transition with me, Will Hooley. I really hope you do come back for more. So from me, thank you and goodbye. Sanlam On Demand initially offers guidance and information services. Should you wish to proceed to personalise individual advice, Sanlam will explain this process in further detail to you. And remember guys, investing involves risk.